If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, March 1st. There's been a ridiculous amount of animation news this past week, but before we get started here, I have to ask, because we made such a big deal about this as part of last week's show, but how was Minnie's Moonlight Madness? Well, it was great. It was freezing. Uh, it was an unseasonably cold night in Southern California. In fact, when we left the Hyperion mm-hmm. Theater, the cast member said, bundle up. It's going to be in a, in the 30s tonight. And so that was great. Okay. So, you know, for the first time ever, you know, being bungeed to three other people helped because of the body <laughs> warmth, you know, the heat coming off of people. Okay. So, it was great. It was a little bit different this year. You didn't have to run back and forth and get your clues. You got all your clues at mm-hmm. once, so you could kind of like strategize your battle plan when it came to which areas of the park you were going to go to. Mm-hmm. I don't know how we we haven't gotten our our ranking mm-hmm. yet, so this will be an ongoing topic okay. uh, of conversation. So hopefully by the next show, I'll let you know how we did. But I think I you know held my own in the trivia questions, and uh, yeah, we had a great group. Shout out to Scott uh, Schlesinger, who's a big big fan of the show, who was on our team so yeah it was really good okay so what was the toughest piece of trivia there are little things like how much and you can use your phone and so we were googling these some of these things frantically but how much is the fish that net of fake fish in pacific wharf (sighs) i still don't know if we know the answer so people are gonna have to chime in stuff like that there's also like a fake barber shop in the one of the shops on main street that has a pennant and what school is that from? And it turned out it was uh, Princeton. Oh, my God. Yeah. So stuff like that. It was really, there was some really hard ones, like things that I did not know. It was it was tough. Yeah. yeah. More power to you. I mean, it's just that I enjoyed my two experiences with it. But to be honest, I enjoyed the one more where I get to sit in the conference room for, you know, get a couple hours inside <laughs> where it was warm, you know, so. You you love a good conference I, room. I do. Well, especially if there, especially if there's taboo things yes of course yeah exactly so okay so you know what i hated though is the introduction to the show they do this kind of like live introduction in the hyperion theater with this guy who is terrible who's like from like orange county dinner theater quality (laughs) and all he does is just do a bunch of math puns for 20 minutes i mean it it was it was painful Mm -hmm. it was really it was really bad you know overall it was a great night (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, you're sure going to get invited back next year now. Wow. Okay. Obviously, you've had a better week than, say, John Lasseter. And I guess folks are have been beating you up on Twitter because we've been talking about the Lasseter situation. But, yeah. but man, this story will just not go away. I mean, I think on the last show we talked about how Emma Thompson had announced she was stepping away from Skydance Animation's luck the role of the character she was supposed to be playing was the head of the organization that controls the world's good luck. Yeah. And this film wasn't going to be released till March of 2021. It's two years away. This obviously had an impact on the production, but it was, you know, it's not a deal breaker. But then, because people wanted to, well, why did she do this? 
Emma writes an open letter and it gets published by the Los Angeles Times. Yeah, I like that. She was like, I'm not going to comment, but I'll give you the letter. To give her credit, right from the get-go, she makes it clear that this has nothing to do with, and I'm quoting directly uh, now from her letter, the very wonderful Alessandro Carlani. He was a longtime animator at DreamWorks SKG. But she says he clearly regrets having to step away from luck because I love Alessandro so much and I think he's an incredibly creative director. But then she goes on to say that I can only do what feels right during these difficult times of transition. She used to talk openly about why she made this difficult decision because she's now looking to protect her daughter's generation. And then from there, the, the actual letter feels very odd that you and your company would consider hiring someone with Mr. Lassiter's pattern of misconduct. If a man's been touching women inappropriately for decades, why would a woman want to work with him if the only reason he's not touching her inappropriately now is that it says in his contract he must behave professionally? And much has been made about giving John Lassiter a second chance, but he presumably is being paid millions of dollars to receive this second chance. And how much money are the employees of Skydance being paid to give him the second chance? And then if John Lasseter had started his own company, then every employee would have been given the opportunity to choose between whether or not they would give him a second chance. But any Skydance employees don't, who don't want to give him a second chance have to stay and be uncomfortable or lose their jobs. Shouldn't it be John Lasseter who has to lose his job if the employees don't want to give him a second chance. I mean, these are, these are tough, tough questions. And which, by the way, Skydance Media Chief David uh, you know, Ellison has yet to answer. What is your take here? I think she's totally, you know, within her rights to air these grievances. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just don't think that the decision to hire him was maybe as well thought out as they claim. Mm-hmm. Because they clearly were not anticipating this kind of backlash at no, all. No, no. I feel like in the future, John Lasseter's transition from the Walt Disney Company to, to Skydance Media is going to be studied, you know, as to how not to resurrect a troubled career. And on the heels of the, the show, I heard from a, <laughs> a friend of Lasseter, and they've got a very interesting take on this whole situation. This is actually what was said along the lines of the conversation. It's like, look, back in May of 1996, Robert Downey Jr. was drugged out of his mind. He get you know, trespasses in somebody's house and is found asleep in his underwear in the bed of an 11-year-old boy. And he winds up going to jail twice. And now he's the biggest star in Hollywood. In fact, what particularly angered them is that this very next film that Downey's doing, it's a big family-friendly thing, uh, The Voyage of Dr. Doolittle for Universal. And, of course, Emma Thompson is doing a voice for that. Right. And she's indicated at no time that she's uncomfortable or that she's going to quit the project because of Downey's past. And it's like, why is it that Hollywood has forgiven Robert Downey Jr. and not John Lasseter? And I think you pretty much summed this up. Yeah, I mean, I think that he was just, he was screwing up his own Mm. life, and he wasn't screwing up anybody else's, Mm. and, you know, he actually did go to jail and seems pretty repentant, and now has a very rigorous uh, juice, uh, you know, schedule uh, that he does. I mean, he really has turned his life around in ways that that people can see, and I think people can tell on screen, Mm. and... From the beginning, I don't think Lasseter has taken those steps to apologize to people uh, in the same way. And and what was interesting was this week, the Pixar story is on Netflix. Mm-hmm. 
And I was rewatching it, and oh my lord. Produced in 2007, right after Disney bought Pixar. Mm-hmm. And the parallels to Walt... I mean, they literally say he is the reincarnation of Walt Disney in this thing. I mean, word for word, it is insane how much power they gave this guy. And it's really sobering to watch now in light of everything else. Poor Leslie, I works. I mean, I love her documentary. She does such great work, but... But you're right. I mean, that was the narrative that was being put forward. But at the same time, you were talking, you and I were talking earlier about, you know, of course, we we watched the Academy Awards, and it's important to acknowledge that Pixar took home the best animated short for Bao and the director and the producer. I loved their comment about nerdy girls who fill up their sketchbooks. I mean, my own daughter Alice, who does that, it's just sort of like, wow, thank you, thank you for doing that. Right. But at the same time, to watch them. As they were on stage, you know, we'd like to thank Pete Doctor for his creative leadership. And it was like, oh, geez, the same damn playbook. Yeah. How how many times have you and I been to a press event that tangentially had something to do with Pixar? And they... they Right. Frozen's uh, Christmas adventure. (laughs) Oh, John. It was all John. Yeah. I mean, you know. it was just was part of whatever speech you gave that you gave your obligatory nod to John Lasseter. And to give you some idea of how the world has changed. So here, the director and producer Bauer backstage and somebody in the, the press scrum, you know, when they're, they're backstage after they've won their awards, asked about Lasseter and they shut him down in a heartbeat. It was just sort of like this guy had nothing to do, you know, with this short. John was gone by that point and this was all ours and. Boy, the world has changed in Emeryville. For the better, I hope. But, yeah. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. All right. So and now I guess it's time to move to the trailer park because there's a lot of interesting trailers that have dropped over the last week or so. So yeah. talk to me about Angry Birds 2. What, what, did, you, what did you think <laughs> of that one? I mean, I thought it was fine it it featured a new character a kind of ice bird character that leslie jones is voicing Mm -hmm. and she's on a kind of ice island and she's mad at the birds and the pigs and it seems fairly straightforward i cannot attest to have having seen the original film so you'll have to tell me if this is a bold reinvention or or not but uh yeah I mean, it looks great animation, but, I mean, I cannot believe there's another Angry Birds movie. Well, we live in the age of the, we made a $1.45, let's make a sequel. How much of, of the whole frozen, a bird in a frozen place and throws ice balls and that sort of thing, how much of that do you think is, you know, Frozen 2 is looming? In um, fact, <laughs> speaking of which, did you see the ridiculous coverage that we got Yes, I thought that that I thought that plot synopsis actually had been out. Yeah. Somewhere. So I I'm shocked that well, uh, you know it, that it got well, picked it, up. I mean I'm very well, happy. No, I am as well. But it was one of these things where I'm looking at the Daily Mail for you know from the UK and Drew you know Drew Taylor and Jim Hill have said this and it's just sort of like really get better sources, people. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that that was my exact thought as well. <laughs> you know, yes. Oh, honey, you know you, you listen to those two idiots. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> By the way, you know, while we're talking about sequels and and more to the point, the Academy Awards. So, Puss in Boots two. I was very surprised. But were you surprised by this news? As you said, with Angry Birds, I the movie. I, I'm 
was pretty sure all the questions had been answered. But on the other hand, pleased as hell is who they selected for their director. Yeah, this is Bob Preschietti, who's who is one of the three directors of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, someone that Phil Lord and Chris Miller called the soul mm-hmm. of the movie. And he was head of story on the first mm-hmm. one. So it's a homecoming of sorts. I just, to me, it just seems very weird that you would go from a movie that is so experimental mm-hmm. looking and feeling and go to something that is obviously such a corporate assembly line product mm-hmm. did you see that illumination is actually overseeing the production too? Yeah. but they made pains to say it will be animated at dreamworks and glendale but that illumination is yeah i don't i don't get i don't understand it exactly what the structure is we're going to be talking in the back half of the show about another one of these geez that's got to be a corporate decision the hotel transylvania four being dropped for December of 2021. But it's not just about the stories. It's not just about the people who are voicing the characters. It's it's the back of the house stuff. And one of the reasons that Illuminations within the animation community is celebrated is their ridiculously tight control over budgets. Yeah, they what are they they usually cost like a third of Oh god, yeah. Other- I mean, Production, I right? took the last eight films that Illuminations made, and on average, Illuminations manages to get a movie out the door to $72.7 million. I mean, obviously, behind that is wow. a giant promotional effort, and when you're partnered with Comcast, I mean, there isn't a universal movie. Well, for example, you know, talking about how well How you how to Train Your Dragon did, but, you know, a lot of people do point to the amazing promotional effort they made. Oh, my God. On MSNBC... Mm-hmm. There would literally be that dragon would come up on the bottom of the screen and run around. Mm -hmm. And it was like, what? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Well, Universal owns this channel, of course. (laughs) We'll get to that in the the second half of the show here. But you break down the cost per movie and just on average, the last eight films. So again, Illuminations really is the gold standard. They can get it in the low 70s. They can get a, a movie out the door that can make billions. It's kind of the same ballpark is Sony Pictures Animation. The original Hotel Transylvania, when that came out in 2012, they got that out the door for $85. And and you and I both know that was a really troubled production. Yeah, the development on that thing was, it felt like, went on forever. Wasn't there at one point a version of the film where it was like Dracula and Frankenstein had rival hotels? and yeah. I think I, I, when I did my, my Gendy, I did a big Gendy profile last mm-hmm. summer, and I think there were like seven different filmmakers attached oh. before him. Yeah. Like crazy. Yeah. yeah. So to show you how disciplined Gennady is as a filmmaker, the first one, again, with all those problems, cost him 85. And, but the next two, he brought him in for less. He brought both Hotel Transylvania 2 and Hotel Transylvania 3 Summer Vacation in for $80 million a piece. And when you think about, how far you can go in 2015 on $80 million versus 2018, that's impressive. But then you start to look at things like Blue Sky. Blue Sky, they come in at just under $100 million, uh, on average for film, 97.6. Then you get to Disney and Pixar. Walt Disney Animation Studios, on average, they get a film out the door for $155.5 million. Ooh. Which, but again, that looks like a bargain compared to Pixar, where on average, there were a couple of films in here that helped throw off the curve. You know, 
<laughs> good dinosaur. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, Bob. I, yeah, I had something in my throat. Sorry. But they, on average, it's 185 million dollars, and this is this is before you spend a dime on promotion. We'll tell you what. We'll, we'll do a deeper dive into the numbers end of this stuff on the second half of the show. But for now, if you can hang in there, folks, it's just a quick commercial break. talking just a little while ago about Hotel Transylvania 4 and likewise here's Puss in Boots 2 being greenlit. This is really a big deal. This is one of the reasons that these two pictures are, are going forward and it has to do with the series based on these shows. I mean what is it? Hotel Transylvania the series is now in the Disney. Which I think is pretty good. I've heard that. I've heard that. But it's a prequel, right? It's Mavis... Yes, Before. they're they're all in the hotel still, okay. and yeah, there's no child mm-hmm. or anything. Yeah. Okay, and then what was the dragons? Um, oh, uh, Dragon Riders of Birth. yeah, Race to the Edge at Netflix, and this is a relatively recent change in the industry, right? Now we were talking about Penguins of Madagascar movie and why that underperformed, right? Yeah, I mean Penguins of Madagascar from 2014 mm-hmm. did underperform and that was do you remember that big shakeup where DreamWorks bumped this one mm-hmm. up and then they pushed some original titles back cuz it was it was when they were really underperforming and they were really nervous mm-hmm. about putting a product out that everybody knew that was connected to a brand this was obviously part of the Madagascar series and then it came out and underperformed and they blamed the long running animated series that I think at the time was running on Nickelodeon mm-hmm. yeah right? yeah and that was the reason that they cited for it underperforming. Now, who knows what actually happened? And and like I said, that was a pretty dark period in DreamWorks animation history. Well, remember, this was also when Jeffrey was trying to get it ready to sell. So it was all about, I need a hit to help bump up the price point. And the Penguins of Madagascar series, that was Bob Scully and Mark McCorkle, the, the Kim Possible guys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There was definitely a pedigree yeah. there. Did you get to see the Kim Possible movie that they just did on uh, the, the live action one for Disney? No, but apparently not a lot of people saw the Kim Possible movie. <laughs> it, uh, ratings were not great, right, is what I've right. been told. That, that yeah. perhaps is true, but it it was worth it for one thing. They got patent Oswald to come back, and again, he voiced the I want to say Professor Demeter in the original series, and. And Patton actually played the character he voiced on the series, which I thought was kind of cool. Anyway, all right, so back to how the math has changed. That just this past weekend, we had How to Train Your Dragon, Hidden World open. And, and you and I talked about that they had announced the numbers, you know, the, or the projected numbers. And they initially thought they were going to fall between how the original How to Train Your Dragon did in 2010, right? And... Yeah. yeah, and and then yeah. you know how in I think 2015, the second one did, and it was I think the first one was 35, the second one was 37, so they were like, okay, split the difference, it's going to hit at 36, and no, yeah. we got a 55. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, but uh, they credited the, the reason that a lot more people came out to this one is yes, they had sold it as the emotional conclusion, and, and let's be honest, as, as you mentioned with the MSB NBC and that sort of thing. Universal did a brilliant job of promoting this thing, but they're actually crediting the fans of the Race to the Edge, the the, the Netflix show, for turning out. Yeah. Because to that generation that is watching movies and television shows 
on their phones, on their tablets. This is all the same. Well, in a weird way, it makes me think of the... You've been following, I'm sure, that the the Netflix slash AMC Breaking Bad movie that's coming out. And Vince Gilligan said, you know, it, it, without Netflix mm-hmm. airing those seasons in between seasons of the mm-hmm. show, it would never have been as popular. So we owe a huge debt to Netflix, and that's why... That's where the movie is going on the service. Mm. So it's really interesting. Yeah. So this is why supposedly, again, that we're getting the Hotel Transylvania for, which we still don't know if Kennedy is coming back. We do not know. He has two movies in development yeah. at Sony, The Black mm-hmm. Knight and Fixed, but no clue. I hope he, well, maybe I don't hope he comes back. I mean, the hell she should do is his other movies. That's what I think. I remember getting to talk with him about his Popeye movie and how wonderful that was going to be. I'm sure you, you got into Sony Pictures Animation and saw the the concept art that they had all over the place for Imagine That. Yeah. Can you imagine? Can, Can you, you imagine? imagine? I mean, I could, and, and yeah. I love that the whole concept of that movie. Akito gets lost in his own imagination and his parents who have to go in after him. And he's such a good corporate citizen because, as he puts it, it's not my money. Right. They're giving me all this money to make a movie, but it's not my money. So I have to deliver what they want. And it's just sort of like... I think he's done his time in the hotel. Yeah. It's I'd love to see him get to do these these other projects. Well, do you think that Inside Out kind of killed? Can you imagine? Jeez, I wonder. Can you talk about your Inside Out related story <laughs> uh, about the Imagination Pavilion oh, or no? Um, okay, yeah, we talked at the, at the top of the show a little bit about uh, Pete Doctor. He's Pixar's big time rep, going to Imagineering, and so. Imagineering thought, okay, here comes Pete Doctor, and it's it's going to be John Lasseter revisited. And so they, they start prepping ride shows and attractions based on the films that Pete's directed. So they push through, for example, a Kevin, the prehistoric bird from Up. You've seen the photos and the images of, of that running loose in Am- Oh my god, he, he looks amazing, or she looks amazing, I should say. Just looks like the poor cast member that's inside of that outfit, that if they trip... They're going down like a tree. They can't put their arms out because their arms are inside controlling that amazing head and mouth and, you know, the blinking eyes and all that. And But while we're talking about characters of the park, you've seen the images of the Toothless that's at Universal Studios Hollywood, right? Or Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I am impressed as hell at the size of that thing. And they really did some amazing detailing, but... Oh my God, that thing looks like torture to be inside of. <laughs> I assume that if you're a really bad Universal Studios Hollywood employee, it's okay, it's time to get in Toothless. I feel like if you did a lot of Pilates, though, that that would sort of be an extension oh. of, of your training. Anyway. <laughs> and they do such short meet and greets outside of the park. I mean, he's out there maybe five minutes and then he laboriously walks back. Though, again, what was cool when they showed the image of him walking back is. Show how ridiculously hyper detailed the outfit was. It had this this long black tail that actually had the artificial fin that uh, Hiccup had made for him. Oh, that's so no, cute! No, beautiful detailing. But all I can picture is he gets backstage, they unzip this guy out of the costume, and then a team of chiropractors try to make like silly putty make him back into human shape. Anyway, uh, back to Pete Doctor. The folks at Imagineering thought, okay, so basically what the deal is here, he's going to come in, and if we show him attractions that are based on his movies, he will say, yes, let's do that. And so 
there's been this sort of elaborate plan to do a redo of the Journey to Imagination ride at Epcot. Just change that into an Inside Out attraction. Yeah, this has been planned since at least 2015, before the movie even came out. So, yeah. The story that I have been told is they bring Doctor in, they do the whole pitch, so it ends and Doctor's like, but this is the Figment ride. And it's like, yeah. And it's like, but Figment's in, you know, inside out. You put him in there, sir. So we'll, of course, you know, do the same thing. We'll make sure Pigment is a cameo. It's like, no, no, no. This is the Figment ride. He's the this beloved character in Epcot. Why would you completely get rid of Figment? And it was one of these things where they kind of blinked at him, where it's like, we're talking about spending, you know, $100 million on an inside out ride here, you know, celebrating your film. And it's like, no, no, no. You guys don't understand Figment. People today really still love Figment. And under his order, there was actually a survey commissioned. And it was like Disney asking, how well do you know Figment? How well do you know this character? And that sort of thing. And sure enough, all this intel came back like, no, people still love Figment. And so it's like doctors insisting that, no, I don't want an inside out ride. I want a Figment ride. And on the other hand, if you want to put an inside out movie in the old 3D theater, yeah, we could do that thing. You know, that makes sense. But doctor actually dug in his heels and insisted on a, a this you know old school disney style ride because he legitimately loves the theme parks i mean he didn't work there like john he wasn't a jungle cruise guy but he loves the parks but he wants the parks that he loves and god help us he's an epcot guy like you drew yes yes <laughs> what's wrong with these people it's an amazing story. Well, do you want to tell us what you thought of the Pokemon trailer? Oh, God, yeah. Before we yeah, leave? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, again, back to trailer park here. The more I see of this movie, I'm legitimately getting a kind of a Roger Rabbit vibe off of it. That It's exactly what I was going to say. That was the exact kind of comparison mm-hmm. that I had. What a cool looking movie. You've seen the couple of scenes with Mr. Mime that they've cut in. There's the one scene where they're interrogating him in what looks like a warehouse, and there's another scene where he's miming that he's fallen off his bike and he wasn't wearing his helmet or that sort of thing. But it's in a dark alley with limited light sources and that sort of thing. And remember, the kind of famous stories that Robert Zemeckis and, and Richard Williams did on the original Robert Rabbit. Like, remember the when Eddie and Roger were in the hidey hole at the terminal bar? Yes. There's an easy way to do this. They just sit under the light and they have their scene. But both Zemeckis and Williams didn't want that. So they hit the light that was hanging over and it was swinging back and forth. And you, yes, you know, so that's the thing. I look at this and that's what this feels like. It's like there was an easy way to do this movie and they opted to go the other way. Yeah. Beautiful work by MPC. Mm -hmm. But again, I guess if we're talking about animated doing cg in live action environment we also have to talk about the other cg and live action environment projects that just got a release date right which one big red oh yes uh, clifford the big red dog right got announced for november 2020 mm-hmm. not as really as inspiring a creative team behind that oh. one um, but come on alvin and the chipmunk one of the directors of one of the alvin and the chipmunks mm-hmm. movies but Paramount's very horny for this, for lack of a better word. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what their approach to animation is. I guess we're going to see Wonder Park finally next week. By the way, who is replacing Jeffrey Tambor? Oh, as the bear? 
Ken Hudson Campbell, who played Bruce, the ominous bookstore owner in 1997 uh, Disney Channel original film, Under Wraps. <laughs> well, okay, so I, I'm sure he's wonderful. But I yeah. guess what brought that to mind was the whole Emma Thompson situation. You know, the notion of, of having an, an actor step away from a project and having to to fill that in. I mean, look, in her case, as we mentioned, it's two years away. Yeah, they lost whatever recording she's done to date. But at this point, got to be mostly, what, animatics, boards, that sort of thing. Right. I think the one that I always felt the worst for was the Despicable Me Too situation. With Al Pacino? Yeah. They hadn't finaled his deal? He walked away like three weeks before the movie opened oh, or something. I just, I can't, I just, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine being in that situation. I mean, look, it's one thing when it's like Atlantis, The Last Empire, where, you know, they, they evidently, they had all of this wonderful stuff that Lloyd Bridges had done, but then Lloyd Bridges died. Who, wait, what character was he? Preston, the millionaire who funded the thing. Uh, John Mahoney. Oh, okay. John Mahoney did a he great did, job. He did, he did. But evidently Lloyd Bridges, it just had that great little touch of craziness that he always brought to, you know, the stuff he did late. And then, you know, again, the, this the strictly financial choices. Like, the way I hear it, Dan Castellaneta had recorded everything for Aladdin and the King of Thieves. I mean, it was... I mean, they were animating when... Disney sort of healed the wound with Robin Williams and, you know, let bygones be bygones and said, hey, by the way, right. you know, if you want to do this. And, I mean, Dan still got a check. That's the thing of, of Wonderland. I wonder if we're ever going to hear any of that tambour stuff. Yeah. I mean, I wonder what the, if, you know, because the, the story with Despicable Me Too was that Benjamin Bratt was actually lip syncing oh. to the character that had already been animated to Al Pacino's dialogue. Oh. You know, what that brings to mind is, remember how they actually brought Mike Myers in to, to replace Chris Farley on Shrek? And then what was it, like three months before it was released, Myers comes to Katzenberg and goes, I don't like this voice. I want to redo Shrek. And it was like Katzenberg smiled and took it. I, I guess they added $2 million to the budget, but it was the same thing. It was like, we cannot reanimate this. You have to match the lip sync. And I, I guess that's where the, the Scottish bro came from. Oh, him trying to match what Farley had he, done. Well, no far. I mean, it's the thing is the Farley version was actually going in an entirely different direction than the fact that, well, first of all, do, do you know about, Shrek had parents? No. Shrek's dad was voiced by Tom Bosley, and Shrek's mom oh, wow. was voiced by Marion Ross. So you've got the mom and dad from Happy Days. They literally live under a bridge, all right? And their job is to frighten people who are going over the bridge. And so they're, they're basically training their son Shrek in the family business. And one day, they hear something up on the bridge, and, okay, son, here's your chance, and they send him up. And he goes up on the bridge, and it's a knight in shining armor. And Shrek has never seen anything like this. This is this is amazing. They have some sort of a banter, and the knight rides off. And that's why Shrek wants to be a knight. I mean, it was a, a real departure from the early version of, you know, if you've read the original William Stig book. But that's Chris Farley. It's, you know, and it's, so it was a, a much sweeter Shrek. Because, again, he was just basically this big kid who was training to be in the family business, which was, you know, lurking under bridges and frightening people and saw a knight and I want to be that. And that was the whole thing of 
that was what was why he went to the tower to rescue Fiona for Farquaad. That's really interesting. They had all of this work done with Chris Farley. And in fact, I remember talking once with Tom Cito about they were still trying to settle on a way to make it look different. And at one point they were doing CG animation, but dropping it into dimensional sets, like kind of a Rankin Bass thing. Oh, that's so cool. So again, you got that storybook look. Somewhere in the vaults is all of the stuff that Chris Farley did. In fact, I got to hear once one piece that he did, and and it was one of these things where I have no idea where this fits in the movie, but it's Chris Farley singing the Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel song, Feeling Groovy. <laughs> wow. Where would that have gone in the movie? Anyway, so, God, we have gone far, far, far. We have, we have gone far okay, afield. So, you know, at this point, folks, the smartest thing would be to shut this down. <laughs> okay, so until we do another one of these, of course, Drew, if, if they've enjoyed your stories, where else can they hear other stories by you? <laughs> uh, well, they can go to uh, moviefound.com, where I'm executive editor, or listen to Light the Fuse, uh, the uh, podcast about Mission Impossible that I co-host with Charles Hood. We've got great uh, interviews this week with the Filmograph guys who did the title sequence for Fallout and Rogue Nation. They just did Glass and Aquaman, so they are like on a real, you know, hot streak. And then uh, on March 15th, we've got the beginning of our three-part Brad Bird interview, so buckle up for That's that one. It's going to be amazing. Okay, we got the podcast that started all, Disney Dish with Len Testa, Marvelous Disney, which is, of course, about uh, Marvel Entertainment, and... I do that with the amazing Aaron Adams. We have Universal Joint I do with Dustin Fuse. We have Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. And then, of course, the brand new merch show that we're doing, I Want That, with Michelle Valladolid. If you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend these shows, that would be terrific. It helps expand the audience, and we'll be back here with a brand new show very soon. Till then, take care. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.